Section six of Henry the Second by Louis Francis Saltzman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter five The Struggle with Becket. Part one. During the time that Henry was campaigning on the Norman borders, in April 1161, Archbishop Theobald of Canterbury died. For nearly a year, the king kept the primacy vacant but at last in the spring of 1162 he declared his wish that becket should take the archiepiscopate the appointment not unforeseen of the courtly chancellor seems to have been distasteful to many of the clergy but the only man who had the courage to brave the king's wrath by opposing the election of his favourite was gilbert foliot bishop of hereford whose opposition was probably increased in vehemence but diminished in effect by the fact that he was himself becket's most dangerous rival in the race for the primacy foliot's protest was supported by the empress maud who as a devoted daughter of the church doubtless considered becket too lax and worldly for the post but for once henry disregarded his mother's opinion becket himself must have seen in his promotion the chance of satisfying his ambition as chancellor he was the second man in the realm, subject only to the king, but subject to him often directing royal policy, but always liable to be checked by an expression of the royal will. As archbishop, with the divine authority of the church behind him, it would be for him to dictate and for the king to obey. Yet knowing, as he alone knew, the ultra-clerical course which he intended to take, he foresaw that it must sooner or later bring him into collision with henry and forebodings for the future more particularly regret for the inevitable disruption of the ancient bonds of friendship which bound him to the king made him hesitate to grasp the prize for which he longed at last the insistence of the king coupled with the persuasions of cardinal henry of pisa overcame becket's half-hearted resistance and in may eleven sixty two he sailed for england for consecration besides the business attendant on his elevation to the primacy the chancellor was charged with the carrying out of arrangements for an expedition against the welsh and also with the performance of fealty to the king's eldest son henry the prince who was at this time eight years old had been entrusted by his father to becket's care and a very genuine feeling of affection existed between the boy and his guardian which was to continue unaffected by the events of later years until the archbishop's death it was therefore not unsuitable that the last recorded act of becket in his official capacity as chancellor was to head the assembled peers at westminster in taking the oath of fealty to the young henry on the occasion of this ceremony which seems to have included an informal coronation for a golden crown and regalia were made for the prince becket was formally elected to the see of canterbury the rights of the monks of christ church canterbury to appoint the archbishop who was also nominally their abbot was so far recognized that they were directed by the king's messengers the bishops of chichester exeter and rochester richard de lucy and his brother the abbot of battle to hold an election but they were told definitely that their choice must fall on the chancellor 
this formality over there arose the question of consecration the right to perform this ceremony was disputed between roger archbishop of york as primate the bishop of rochester as vicar of canterbury and the bishop of winchester as precentor of canterbury while a claim was also put in by the bishop of one of the welsh sees as the senior member of the episcopal bench the see of london whose bishop as dean of canterbury would have had the best claim to officiate was vacant but the dean and canons appointed henry bishop of winchester to act for them and to him eventually was assigned the honour of officiating on saturday second june becket who was still in deacon's orders was ordained priest and on the following day he was consecrated archbishop to commemorate the occasion he ordained that the sunday following whitsunday should in future be kept as a great festival in honour of the holy trinity and even the zeal of the reformers against the cult of thomas of canterbury did not blot out from the calendar of the english church trinity sunday the consecration of thomas as archbishop of canterbury was indeed an event worthy of commemoration forming as it did the prelude to the struggle between clerical and lay power which was to occupy the next ten years of henry's reign this struggle presents a curious problem of historical perspective seen through the atmosphere of the contemporary chronicle or through the rarefied medium of history the becket controversy presents very different features to contemporaries it seemed of overpowering importance eclipsing all other events of the time and entailing issues of enormous weight to us the points at issue seem of slight significance while the results appear almost negligible in comparison with the energy and heat expended to produce them whichever view if either is correct there can be no doubt of the great part played by this episode for though in the end the contending parties were left very much where they started the casual results of the struggle influenced the history of the country most powerfully so that in this controversy the incidents are of greater importance than the main matter of contention it is easy to be wise after the event and henry is constantly blamed by modern writers for having promoted becket to the primacy and not having foreseen the consequences yet little reflection is required to show that nothing short of the gift of prophecy would have enabled henry to foresee the position which thomas was to take up the chancellor had habitually neglected his duties as archdeacon of canterbury calling down upon himself the rebukes of archbishop theobald and had on several occasions shown very slight regard for the privileges of the church at the time of his appointment gilbert foliot scoffingly remarked that the king had performed a miracle for he had converted a knightly courtier into a holy archbishop events proved foliot's jest a truth and though it was becket who wrought the marvellous metamorphosis himself it remained a miracle unforeshadowed in the past life or character of the man thomas who was born on twenty first december eleven eighteen was the son of Gilbert Becket by Maud, his wife. His parents were both of Norman extraction, but had settled in London before his birth, belonging to the middle class, and were comfortably off, and by them he was sent to the school of the canons of Merton Priory. 
while he was still quite young his mother died and not long afterwards his father who was in very reduced circumstances owing to losses by fire followed her fortunately for himself thomas who was a good-looking boy of much promise had attracted the attention of a powerful baron richet of l'aigle who had been in the habit of putting up at the becketts house whenever he came up to london richet interested himself in the orphan sending him to school in london and allowing him to spend his holidays with him in the country presumably at his sussex castle of pevensey here thomas practised hunting hawking and other manly sports on one occasion nearly losing his life in the endeavour to rescue his falcon from a mill-stream his patron appears to have sent him to study in paris and on his return he entered the service of his kinsman osborne wheatdenier one of the leading citizens of london after some three years of official life in the city he determined to try a field more promising for his ambitions once again his father's hospitality proved the means of his advancement two of gilbert's former guests the archdeacon baldwin and his brother master eustace introduced him to the notice of archbishop theobald the archbishop finding that the young man's father had come from his own native town of tierceville gladly enrolled him in his household and took a kindly interest in him there were at this time at the archbishop's court many men of distinction and learning and one of these roger of pont l'eveque afterwards archbishop of york jealous of the favour shown to thomas whose powers lay in the direction of showy brilliance rather than sound scholarship did all he could to injure and annoy him twice roger persuaded the archbishop to dismiss the young man but on each occasion theobald's brother walter archdeacon of canterbury took up his cause and secured his restoration to favour as early as eleven forty three when he was in his twenty-fifth year thomas rendered his patron good service at the papal court in the matter of annulling the legantine commission formerly granted to bishop henry of winchester about this date he appears to have attended the famous law schools at bologna and afterwards at auxerre by this time he was beginning to become a person of importance the churches of st mary le strand and otford and prebends in st paul's and lincoln had been bestowed upon him and in march eleven forty eight he with his rival roger of pont l'eveque attended the archbishop on his venturesome sail across the channel to the council of rheims three years later in eleven fifty one becket achieved a further diplomatic success in defeating stephen's efforts to obtain papal recognition for his son eustace and in eleven fifty four when roger of pont l'eveque became archbishop of york thomas succeeded him as archdeacon of canterbury on the accession of henry the second as we have seen thomas was made chancellor by the advice of archbishop theobald with the generous support of bishop henry of winchester whose claims he had once been instrumental in defeating of the splendour and luxury displayed in his household as chancellor something has already been told the means to satisfy his taste for magnificence and display were furnished not only by the emoluments regular and irregular of his office but by multitudinous extra preferments bestowed upon him such as the provostship of beverley the custody of the tower of london which he restored and strengthened 
and the honours of Eye and Berkhamstead. He still retained his youthful love of sport, and also displayed considerable military ability. During the expedition to Toulouse, he was left in command at Cahors, and justified his appointment by leading his troops in person to the capture of three other castles, while somewhat later he overthrew a French knight in single combat. The king could appreciate a man of spirit and a good sportsman, and the two men became fast friends. Henry, on his way to or from the hunt, would often drop in at the chancellor's house and take a glass of wine with him, or, vaulting the table, sit down and eat, noting with amusement the luxury for which his friend was so famous. The story is well known how, as king and chancellor were riding together through the streets of London one bitter winter's day, they saw a poor old man clad in rags. Turning to his friend, the king said, Would it not be a meritorious act to give that poor old man a warm cloak? The chancellor agreeing that it would indeed, Henry exclaimed, You shall have the merit of this worthy act, and seizing Becket's magnificent fur-lined cloak, after a short struggle, secured it and flung it to the beggar. The intimate friend of the king, a courtier, sportsman, and warrior, whose only interest in the church seemed to be to draw the revenues of his many benefices and to extract money from its prelates for his royal master, no one could have foreseen Becket's conversion into the most ultra-clerical of archbishops. Almost the first act of the newly consecrated archbishop was to resign the chancellorship as becket must have been fully aware that the king expected him to continue in office and would never have bestowed the primacy upon him if he had declared his intention of resigning his action was surprising and unjustifiable henry though deeply annoyed accepted the situation and displayed no ill feelings toward thomas in fact when he landed at southampton in january eleven sixty three having been detained at Cherbourg over Christmas by bad weather, he greeted the archbishop with all the warmth of affection which he had formerly bestowed upon the chancellor. These good relations continued for some months, Thomas supporting the king's request to the pope for the translation of Gilbert Foliot from Hereford to the vacancy of London, and Henry visiting the archbishop of Canterbury on his way down to Dover to meet the Count of Flanders in March but becket was now throwing himself with his usual thoroughness into the work appropriate to his position as head of the english church his taste for display continued unabated but found new outlets as archbishop he was the recognized patron of the younger sons of nobles as the king was of their elder sons whilst among the crowd of high-born youths serving as his esquires was the heir to the throne his household was as magnificent and his table as well appointed as ever but the clerks who had formerly received little consideration had now supplanted the knights in the place of honour while a somewhat ostentatious prominence was given to the daily distribution of alms and feeding of large numbers of poor persons thomas himself presided gracefully over the splendid feasts and though far from practising the stern asceticism of gilbert foliot observed a strict moderation suitable to the monastic habit which he had assumed and although there was no lack of gaiety and animation at his table the jesters and minstrels of former days 
were now replaced by readers of the Holy Scripture. Soon the erstwhile pluralist chancellor began to attack the bestowal of multiple benefices upon the king's clerks, laymen in all but name, whose sole connection with their benefices was to draw their revenues. So long as Becket confined himself to this legitimate course of reform, the king raised no objections, only insisting that the physician should first heal himself by surrendering the archdeaconry of Canterbury, which he had most inconsistently retained with the archbishopric. But soon Thomas passed from correcting the faults of his clergy to protecting their vices. The complaints of the laity against the extortions and injustice of the archdeacons and their officials had been brought to Henry's notice in the time of Archbishop Theobald, and one particular case reported from Scarborough roused the king to declare that these clerical officers wrung more money from the people every year than the revenues of the crown. Had not matters of importance obliged Henry to leave England just at this time, it is not improbable that he would have carried out, with the assistance of Thomas the Chancellor, some of those measures for the control of the clerical courts which Thomas the Archbishop devoted his life to opposing. The bishops ordained candidates without regard to their fitness, and contrary to the canons, bestowed orders upon men who had no title. Inevitably the country was overrun with men of low character, without definite means of subsistence, who could laugh alike at the lay courts, which had no jurisdiction over them, and at the ecclesiastical courts whose proceedings were only too often a farce. For the clerk, who held no church, deprivation had no terrors, and it was well known that the bishops would rather a guilty clerk were acquitted than that they should be burdened with the cost of his keep in the episcopal prisons. Murders and other crimes were committed by these bastard sons of the church, and any attempt to bring the offenders to book was foiled by the prelates. Becket, who as chancellor had imprisoned a clerk in the tower for seduction, now threw the mantle of the church over an unworthy clerk who had been guilty of a peculiarly atrocious murder and adultery. The king felt strongly in the matter, but it would seem that for a time his old affection kept him from pressing his anti-clerical measures to the point of an actual breach with the archbishop. Other matters, however, more personal, now arose to increase the estrangement between the former friends. End of section 6